All right, guys, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are doing a series through First and Second Timothy and Titus. I was looking back at my notes this week from the first ever sermon that I gave at Salt City Church, and I was trying to remember what my big idea was. My big idea in that sermon was that Salt City Church is a countercultural community. And what I meant by that is that the vision of our church has always been to be culturally relevant in terms of our dress and style so that if you walked out of Minneapolis into our church, you wouldn't feel like you were entering a foreign country, but to be countercultural in the sense that we stand on the truth of God's word and we don't get our cues in terms of what's true and what's not from our culture. We're going to see that believing that and embracing that is going to be relevant to accepting the message that we're reading in the Bible this morning. And that's because there are parts of it that are controversial in terms of their disagreement with our wider culture. And so as a result of that, we are going to be doing not only this service, but we're also going to be doing a Q&A after the service. And so I'm going to be available to everyone in this room. Hopefully not all of you want to come or we'll have to move it back into this room. But in the Summit Ballroom, which is right across the lobby here, to answer questions that you would have about Jordan's message two weeks ago, which created a little bit of controversy as well, and this message, and would be willing to to unpack any questions that you have and try to give you scriptural answers um, to those things. So in some texts of scripture, you have to dig hard for what your big idea is going to be. This is not one of them. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, which is actually the end of our passage. And Paul is going to tell us what our big idea is in verses 14 through 16. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So here's how I summarize what Paul says in this passage. I said that God's household is countercultural because what Paul says in this text is that the, his purpose of writing to Timothy is to tell him how people are to behave in the household of God. And then he gives a purpose statement for the church of the living God, which is to be a pillar and buttress of truth. In other words, the purpose of the ch- church is for us to hold on to the truth in a culture that doesn't understand us and thinks we're weird. And so that's what we're going to seek to do this morning. So three ways that this is true, that God's household is countercultural. The first one is the priority of prayer. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 to start. It says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul is giving instructions for corporate worship, and the first thing that he says is he wants prayers to be made for all people. And he includes in the all people kings and all who are in high positions. So this is Paul's view of what we would call political activism in the church. He says, I want you to pray for kings. This was completely counter to what Christians in that day would have felt like doing because one of the people that they would have been praying for was Nero, who was the emperor in Rome. And Nero is famous for taking Christians, covering them in tar, lighting them on fire, tying them to posts, and lighting his backyard garden because he loved to see Christians scream. And they were to gather in their corporate worship service, and they were to pray for him. But not just to pray for him, they were to thank God for him. Think about that. Our tendency is to want to complain, is to want to protest, is to want to get angry, is to want to put ourselves on one side and not the other and scream across the aisle. And Paul says, I want you to pray. Why? He says that he wants them to pray so that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So, in other words, he's saying prayer works. Prayer can move the heart of a king, even a king who is violently opposed to Christianity. And we see that the early church obeyed this command and that it worked. In fact, the official religion of Rome became Christianity as a result, not of getting out on the streets, but of praying in the corporate gathering. We're not talking about like thoughts and prayers here. We're talking about the people of God getting on their knees and praying for their country in sort of a nonpartisan way that we as Christians would continue to be able to gather in services like this and have the freedom to share our faith so that why? Okay, not just that so we could be, lead a peaceful life, so that we could have, a, have freedom, so that we could say cheesy things like God bless America, but instead, because, look at verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
In other words, we pray for kings and those who are in high positions so that we can live godly lives in the present age so that we have the opportunity to win our enemies to Christ. See, as a church, we believe that there is something greater going on than politics. Our job as Christians and our stance as a church is not to be on the cutting edge of the culture war. We're not fighting a culture war. We love this world because Jesus has first loved us. And our primary desire is not that people come into political alignment than us. We don't care about that. Our primary heartbeat is that people bow the knee to King Jesus and that they have an opportunity to be saved by him. And so when we see people going off on social media, whatever side they're on, about their political preferences, we don't get involved in that. Instead, we get on our knees and we say, would they see that King Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all? That he is the one who will satisfy the desire of their heart? Okay, imagine that there was somebody who was standing on a ledge who was about to commit suicide. And you were in the building. And your job was to talk that person off the ledge. My guess is you wouldn't pick a fight with that person. My guess is instead, you would try to stay as calm as you possibly could, and inside, you would be praying, oh God, please, don't let this person jump off this cliff. Help me to stay calm and to lead them back into this window. Why? Because whatever argument you would have with that person or whatever disagreement you would have with that person is so secondary because their life is on the line. Paul is saying, this world and all of its desires are passing away and a large majority of the people that we interact with and rub shoulders with on a daily basis are standing on the ledge and they are one car accident or one heart attack or one cancer diagnosis away from an eternity separated from God in hell. And we are arguing with them about politics. Who cares? There is something far more important at stake than politics. Give them Jesus. He's the hope of the world. And this church will not pander to political arguments when the world needs Jesus. The world needs Jesus. And so Paul says, pray. Pray. Be sobered. Recognize what's really important in this world. We are not bitter victims fighting a culture war. We are ambassadors for Christ, as if God were making his appeal through us. So the application for all of us is to not participate 
in condemning hateful speech to people on the other side of the aisle or to people whom we disagree with about important issues. It is to pray and spend our lives appealing to everyone that we can to be reconciled to God through Christ. I think that's why Paul says next in the text that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ. Saying that's what's on the line. Without Christ, people perish forever. Okay, the second countercultural thing that Paul says ought to characterize God's household is the roles of men and women. Look with me at verses 8 through 15. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, let's just take this passage in order. First off, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, this is interesting because it follows the passage that we just looked at. Paul exhorts the whole church to pray, not to argue or quarrel. And then again, he just zooms on in on the men and says, guys, we should pray, not argue and quarrel. He's basically saying, like, the church, guys, is not a place for us to just have a bunch of theological debates all the time and get angry with each other about secondary issues. He's saying, guys, let's not come to church with bitterness in our heart toward each other or toward our families or toward our kids. Instead, let's come with a heart of worship and let's use our voices not to discourage and disparage others, but let's use our voices to pray. Paul is saying, I want the men of the church to be leaders who are holy and have a real and deep and lasting connection to King Jesus. That you're not primarily marked about what you, by what you know, but about who you know. That you have a deep relationship with Jesus. Then he says to women in the church that he wants women to dress with modesty. He says women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. And then he gives a few descriptions of what not to wear. He says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, there is a cultural element to what he's describing here because 
what he's listing there would have been the common dress of a cult prostitute. So there would be a big temple in Ephesus, and there would be prostitutes around the temple whose primary motivation in the way that they dressed was to seduce men to sleep with them. And he is saying, hey, ladies, when you come to church, I don't want you dressing to seduce. I want you dressing for the eyes of your Father in heaven. And here's what pleases God. Not what you wear, but who you are. God is pleased by good works. And so I think that the cultural way of saying this would be, ladies, don't get your dress code from the Kardashian sisters, from Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, or from an Instagram influencer. Get it from the godly women in this church. And don't dress in such a way that it compromises your witness for Jesus. Because no one ever looks at an immodestly dressed woman and says, she must be a follower of Christ. And so my encouragement to you is, buck the standards of our society, be countercultural, be a rebel by living for the eyes of God alone. Okay, then we get into the most controversial part of the text, where Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So we're talking about the gathered church here. We're talking about corporate worship. And Paul says, in corporate worship, I want men to teach. And when he talks about authority here, I think he's specifically talking about the role of eldership in the church. So he says two things are forbidden to women in the church. That is to serve as elders, that is overseers in the local church, and to teach in a Sunday morning worship gathering. Now, some people would make the argument that this also is cultural. Like, okay, Drew, so you're saying that I can still wear braided hair and gold, but you're telling me that I can't teach. So what are you doing there? You're saying one is cultural and the other isn't. The reason that I'm saying that is because I believe that that's what the text says. Look at the reason that he gives that women are not to teach in the Sunday morning gathering or serve as elders. He says... For, that is because, this is the reason that I'm giving, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So here's what he's saying. The reason that women are not to teach in the corporate gathering or serve as elders is because before the fall even happened, before sin even entered in the world, God created Adam first. Then he created Eve. This has nothing to do with competency. It has to do with creation. He's not saying men are more qualified because they're better teachers. There are surely women who would be better teachers than some men. He's saying in God's design, in creation, 
What he was saying to us is, I created men to lead in the church. And then he furthers that argument by saying, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that women are more likely to be deceived than men. What he's saying is, when the fall happened, Eve stepped forward and had a conversation with Satan. Where was Adam? He was standing right there. What happened in the fall was a role reversal. In other words, Eve stepped up and in that moment became the leader of her home, and Adam didn't step in and kill the snake. And as a result of that role reversal, sin entered the world. So he's giving an example of what it looks like when men and women switch places. And the results are disastrous. Then he goes on to explain himself further, because you might think at this point that this makes women inferior to men in terms of their value. And Paul gives us a really confusing verse to explain why this isn't true. (laughs) Verse 15, he says, yet she, that is Eve, will be saved through childbearing. Like, I haven't had a baby, am I saved? That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. He's anticipating the argument that women would be seen as less valuable to into the church because they are not permitted to teach or serve as elders. And he's saying, but think about what we believe about Jesus. He was born of a woman, born under the law. So although sin first came into the world because Eve was deceived, the Savior of the world came from a woman's womb. And because the Savior of the world came from a woman's womb, what God is communicating to us is although men and women have different roles in the church and in reproduction, both have equal dignity and value in the sight of God. This is not about dignity. This is not about value. This is not about competency. This is about God's creative design. Now, I think it's really important at this point that we recognize that the church as a whole throughout history has butchered this one absolutely butchered this one. And there is so much church hurt related to this around every corner. I was really sobered during COVID when I was listening into another church's church service. And they had formally believed what we're teaching this morning. But they were rehearsing this moment of church-wide repentance. And basically what they recognized in their church is that women had been mistreated in their church. But here's what they did that I think was a misstep. They threw the baby out with the bathwater. In other words, they said, the reason that women have been mistreated in our church is because we believed this text. And so the only way 
that women can be properly treated in our church is to throw out the Bible. And I remember hearing that and actually being instructed by it. Like, I hope that Salt City is a place where women are honored and are treated with the dignity and respect that they deserve as image bearers of God. That a woman never feels inferior to a man because of anything that a man says or does, whether overtly or by body language or anything else. I hope that women have vibrant serving roles in our church. But here's what I won't do. I won't try to figure this out on my own. I won't abandon the Bible. Because here is what God, our Father, is saying to us. This is how the family of God works best. Our Father in heaven is saying to us, I am forbidding women to teach in the gathered church and serve as elders, and you have to trust me that this is best, even if you don't understand it. And so what we don't want to do at this point is we don't want to go in the direction of patriarchy, which I think is rampant in the church. Patriarchy basically takes this text, guys underline it, they highlight it, they memorize it, it becomes their favorite verse in the entire Bible, (laughs) and they just go around saying, this is how it is. We're going to lay down the law. And women are not just forbidden from teaching in the Sunday morning gathering and serving as elders, but are fundamentally cut off in the life of the church and are forbidden from essentially doing anything. That is deeply unbiblical and wrong. That's patriarchy. We are also not going to go in the direction of egalitarianism. Egalitarianism says there is no difference between men and women. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there are differences between men and women. I don't know if you've noticed. Our culture is really confused about that. We're not. There are fundamental differences between men and women, not in terms of dignity, but in terms of role and certainly in terms of physical appearance. And so we are not going to obliterate difference. We're going to celebrate it and dignify it and honor one another in our differences. So we are complementarians, which means that God has created men and women equal, but with different roles. We're talking about the church this morning. We'll talk about the home in other contexts. But we embrace that, and we are working that out in the life of our church. So one example of how complementarianism works in our church, let me just pull back the curtain a little bit for you, is our executive team, which is part of our operations team within our staff, is comprised of two men and a woman. It's myself, Travis Manderfield, and Jennifer Tuttle. And I am telling you, all of our staff would say this, the most capable person in our church is Jennifer Tuttle. Okay? There's... There's no doubt about it. Like, 
There is absolutely no doubt about it. She is in so many ways running the show around here. And I am so thankful for her. And I often thank God for her and the way that God is using her in our church. So far from cutting women's legs out from under them and not allowing them to lead within our church, we are seeking to platform and dignify women's gifts in every area that we can that does not violate God's household rules. Okay, the third thing that we see that is countercultural in God's household is the character of leaders. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, this is an incredibly important ingredient in a church family that is going to be a place of dignity and honor and respect. And that is that leaders are chosen not on the basis of charisma or even on the basis of competency, but on the basis of character. Now, the only exception to that in this list is that elders or leaders in the church, overseers who are to be men, are to be able to teach. It doesn't say that elders are to be incredible Bible teachers who are super compelling, who can stand up in, a, in front of a crowd this size. The bar is super low. Able to teach. As a student of the Bible, can instruct someone else on the basic doctrines of Scripture. And the rest of the list is all about character. The family of God is to be led at a local level by men of character who have bowed the need to Jesus Christ. So, first off, he says that an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach. That is, that no one inside the church in their family, in their workplace, or in their neighborhood, has anything bad to say about them that could stick. They are above any reproach. The second thing we see in the text is that they are the husband of one wife. It literally means a one-woman man. These are men who have made a covenant with their eyes not to look lustfully at another woman. They're not cheating on their wife. They're not committing adultery. They're not looking at pornography. This is a one-woman man. These are sober-minded men. That is, they're not drunk in their mind. They're not all over the place. They're focused. Focused on their family. Focused on the church. Focused on being godly men. 
They're self-controlled. That is, they're able to order their own life in such a way that their priorities are straight. Hardworking, in the Word of God, loving the people around them. Respectable, I think that goes along with being above reproach. People aren't looking at them and saying, hey, there's a bunch of character issues in their life, and I really don't want to follow their leadership because I don't think they're worthy of following. These should be men that you look at, and their lifestyle is something that you want to emulate. They're hospitable. That is, they have people into their home because they're not hiding anything, and they're willing to sacrifice. It costs money to have people in your home to feed them. It takes your time It takes an organization of your priorities. And so elders ought to be hospitable. We already talked about able to teach. I think not a drunkard is pretty self-explanatory. Not violent, but gentle. These guys don't hit their wives. They don't hit their kids. They don't hit people at bars or at sporting events. These guys are known, yes, as manly men, but not in the way that the world would characterize that not violent, gentle, in spirit and in action, not quarrelsome. They're not looking to pick a fight with everybody. They're looking to help and serve within their family and within the church, not a lover of money. Instead, they believe that you cannot love both God and money, and so they are using their money to serve God, not using God to get as much money as they can. He must manage his own household well. Did you know that a man's leadership within his house is what qualifies him to lead within the church? And so he ought to be leading his family, his wife and his kids, toward love and devotion to Jesus, not away from it, behind closed doors. Paul reiterates that by saying, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If you can't care for a small household, how are you to be entrusted with a much bigger one? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, there needs to be a track record of faithfulness without authority before someone can be given this kind of responsibility and authority in the church. And he must be well thought of by outsiders. So he's not a fake. It's not just for the church that he's putting on the show and this performance, but he's well thought of by people in the community because he's not two-faced, he's not a hypocrite, he's the same person wherever he goes. I think that If we as men lead like this, that it gives us an appropriate picture of the context in which there is submission in the church. And here's what I'm asking from our church, is that you hold us to this. I'm saying that our lives as elders, that's myself, Josh Lawson, Dave Hunting, Jordan Adams, Terry Langlin, and Rob Wassenauer are open books. And if you see something in our lives that you say is dishonoring to God, 
the biblical kind of prescription is to get a witness. So if there's somebody else who's also seeing that and then come to our elder team and say, hey, there's something that is wrong here. There's something that is off the tracks here. Now, I'm super thankful for our elder team because I believe that we have assembled an elder team by God's grace that is full of men of character. And here's how I know that these guys have character. It's not that we can go through this list and say, yep, got it down. I'm a man of character. Check, 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 check. Now everyone has to follow my leadership. The reason I know that these guys are men of character is because at our elder meeting, whenever we've talked about this text, it always turns into a time of repentance. It always turns into a time where we go through the list and we don't pat ourselves on the back. We pray. And we say, God, help us to be more like this. Because we want to be men of character, but we recognize that we still struggle with anger and with lust and with pride. And that there are moments in each of our lives that we are not proud of. And so we are striving to be these type of men so that we can lead our church in a way that is honoring to Jesus, which means that we're constantly pushing against our culture. Because what are the qualifications of a leader in our culture? Certainly doesn't seem to be character, does it? Doesn't seem to matter too much. And so we would appreciate your prayers as we continue to try to swim upstream. Okay, here's the big idea with all this. I know we've talked a lot about things that might have rubbed you the wrong way or um, might be the first time that you're hearing these things. Here's how I think that we accept texts like this from the Bible. This is God's household. This is God's word. And even if you have church hurt, you have a perfect heavenly father whose character is unstained and unmatched. And the proof of his love for you as his child is that he sent his own son to shed his blood for you. He's demonstrated his love for you in this. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And God is saying, in this broken, hostile, messed up world, this is the best path forward. And so you're not ultimately submitting to me. You're submitting to God and to his word. And it's on his word that this church will stand, or if we disobey it, will fall. So let's pray that we would accept this hard teaching as a church family. Um, Father God, um, I pray that we would not be a harsh, a judgmental church in our leadership or in our spirit or in our attitude. We desire all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And we do not want to be a church that is picking and choosing what we do and what we don't believe 
in the Bible. But we are under your lordship. Your word is our authority, and we want to submit to it. And that's hard. I specifically lift up the ladies in our church and uh, those who, this hurts, this stings. God, I I pray that um, this would be a place that they could thoughtfully process that, even uh, process sometimes with anger and tears and, and good questions, and that you would lead us as our Father into a place where we're, we're really following you in these areas, where men are serving and, and praying and not fighting and are men of character and where women are, are using their gifts but not doing what you forbid. We pray this all in Jesus' good name for his glory. Amen.